Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Stewart Bullock, and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about dysfunction and disease. The word dysfunction means abnormal function, and disease literally means lack of ease. Quite simple. Rebecca and I will be talking about the use of these terms in relation to our bodies and our physiology. I will show how changing the way we view the messages and language of our dysfunction or disease can help transform treatment and outcome. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this episode. This topic of dysfunction and disease and how the model from transformational therapeutics is a huge and valuable tool in approaching dysfunction and disease. So many of us are walking around with aches and pains and injuries and diseases and continually go back to the same things that don't work. And that is when I think a lot of people start looking elsewhere, like what else can I do to solve this chronic issue that's been an issue for a long time? That's how a lot of people found you when you worked with clients in the past where someone was dealing with something and they didn't know where else to turn. Well, yeah, I was the end of the line person. Could you just refresh us on what you did working with patients? Well, I'm trained as a manual therapist. So the people who, well, actually, the people who ended up with me had all kinds of dysfunctions Mm -hmm. from young babies with cerebral palsy to people with back pain to people with frozen shoulders. I mean, when I think back, I mean, I covered the whole gamut. And in my training, and I'm very much enthralled with anatomy. I just find anatomy the most amazing thing. But in my actual training, and particularly in my master's program, we talked a lot about dysfunction as opposed to disease. I use that broadly for any body that came before me. Dysfunction is a lack of function. And then I applied it not only grossly to a a total body, but to the tissues within that body. And what are the forces? What are the impacts that are influencing that area, that anatomical space, that part of the body that are causing dysfunction. Disease to me is, again, I go to the language, is a lack of ease, which then translates for me, particularly in soft tissue and fascia, as an inability or a lack of ease within the tissues. And so then if I perceive it as that, rather than in the medical model, I can then ask myself, why is there a lack of ease in this tissue? Why is there a lack of ease, you know, in this joint? And take it from there. I also had the skills, the manual skills, to address the different dysfunctions. And then I did a inordinate amount of research on the psychology, um, the brain science, that sort of thing, to justify what I was seeing or to explain what I was seeing in the bodies that I was treating. Can you explain, like, what is the difference between dysfunction and disease as far as, like, is a frozen shoulder a dysfunction or, or a disease? I tend to think in the medical model, disease is something like diabetes or cancer or uh, ALS or something like that, whereas dysfunction to me had 
somewhat of a mechanical aspect to it. But as I've gotten older and treated more, the line between them blends much more. And as more understanding of nutrition and its impact on the body has come in, the line is much less clear between dysfunction and disease. Mm -hmm. But I am trained as a physical therapist, so function is really what I'm interested in, whether it's psychological function, physiological function, visual function. I'm interested in its application in the real world. That's a prime motivator for me. Mm. So when you work with someone, you're seeking to give them more function? I'm seeking to give them more function, to give their tissues more function, all within the context of what health is. There's a great quote it may have been from A.T. Still, who was the founder of osteopathy. The quote is, find health, anyone can find disease. And so in my studies, I realized that the body has an inordinate ability to heal itself. It's just whether or not we have the ability to tap into it. Ooh, that's so good. That's so helpful. You started using language right away with the actual words of dysfunction and disease. It's like starting from the top down. Yes, I, and I see everything, as, again, as language. Right. It has led me, I guess, to where I am now. Absolutely. So if you do that, just even with the word dysfunction and disease and deciding which one is which, and that helps direct you, do you do the same thing with the actual name of the particular dysfunction or disease? Yes. So if we're looking at what's classically been from a mechanical standpoint, if you have a diagnosis of, for instance, a frozen shoulder, so frozen means something to me and, and shoulder means something. And so then I'll go into the symbolism of it. Frozen, which means doesn't move, is literally could be cold frozen, that sort of thing. And then shoulders, what do shoulders do in our culture? Shoulders bear burdens. They, I mean, you just go, you just start riffing on what the meaning of that area is. They reach out. When you're reaching for something, if your shoulder is frozen, you can't reach as far. You can't functionally do things. So what is the consequence of the actual words frozen and shoulder? What are all the different things I can look at that might be influencing it? And particularly from a psychological standpoint, there's um, Candy Pert, who was the woman who discovered endorphins, said, and I quote, Since emotions run every system in the body, don't underestimate their power to treat and heal. So when I was able to then bring the emotional piece on board, it changed the outcomes hugely. How did you do that? Well, I did it with myself first. Mm. I always did. This was all an attempt to heal myself, as I think it is with most people in this profession. I just sort of had the knowing, particularly from Candy Pert and some other people in the field, and started doing research on how emotions run every system, how they're connected. And understanding that and how it affects the physiology and which emotions affect it in what way. What does stress do? What does hate do? What does love do? What does joy do? And we all know it. We all feel it. But we don't give it credence to its impact on what we call disease or dysfunction. So true. We tend to... We separate out everything and I don't separate out anything. Right. And I, again, seeing it as language... So the physiology, I use the term psychophysiology, what's in our psychology is in our physiology. And so I don't believe you can separate the two. Mm. How does that help you? For one, it, it just gives me an understanding of a, another aspect of what the person is bringing to me. 
it allows me to address in whatever way I do the emotional aspect of whatever the dysfunction or disease is. When I think about the kids I've treated with cerebral palsy, I believe that that's somewhat of a misnomer because they were bodies that came to me with a lot of spasticity and inability to move, to function, to speak, whatever it was, in whichever system it was, it was manifesting. There has to be an emotional component to that in terms of it helped me develop my whole philosophy about power and our bodies being the vehicles that we interact with the world in, understanding the sensory systems, particularly in these kids that were, were so in many ways handicapped, and how to find the health in those tissues rather than see everything as a negative disease state. And particularly with kids, I started with kids because they're young and they have so much potential. And then I thought, well, this potential's in adults too. I just have to access it. Hmm. I, I also, I would like to talk about feedback loops. Because when you're treating somebody, when I'm treating somebody, it sets up a feedback loop between what I'm feeling that's coming from them and how I'm interacting with it and then also with the person. So there are multiple layers of feedback loops. And then inherent in the person, for instance, a child with cerebral palsy, is the feedback loop between that child's brain and body is altered somehow. And so I'm addressing that, literally addressing that feedback loop and trying to normalize it within their physiology. Also doing it with the feedback loop that I've set up between that patient and myself. So it's really a series of feedback loops and it has a lot to do with the relationship itself mm -hmm. and how we relate to each other, how they relate internally within their own bodies. Can you explain a feedback loop briefly again? There are many forms of feedback loops. So you and I are in a feedback loop right now. You're asking me questions. I'm answering. We're having an exchange of information. So that's one form of feedback loop. There are internal feedback loops. For instance, I have a frozen shoulder. My brain is then learning that the shoulder doesn't move. So then I don't move it. And it sets up a whole feedback loop there. Pain is a huge motivator for a feedback loop for lack of function and movement. And our psychology, just imagine what somebody's reaction is when they are told they have cancer. That sets up an internal feedback loop associated in our culture with fear. So feedback loops to me are vital. I see them also as within relationships, a form of feedback loop is reciprocity. It's back and forth. It allows for actually promotes growth between two beings it can be a negative feedback loop if you have two people screaming at each other either way it's if everything is a feedback loop language is not only verbal language speaking it's the receiving of it also so it's always there's a feedback loop between two beings between two structures between two in anatomy areas that's just how i see I love to hear the description of the frozen shoulder feedback loop. Could you share about your experience with working with frozen shoulders to give us an example about how you can apply this model to working, approaching that dysfunction? There are different levels that are impacted either by the frozen shoulder or that impact the frozen shoulders manifestation. And I've only learned some of that recently because I just continue to learn. But when I was a young physical therapist, a frozen shoulder was a mechanical restriction 
we sort of didn't know where it came from. We didn't know why it happened. It mostly happened in women. And you intervened with manual therapy techniques to improve the range of motion in the shoulder. And as I evolved, um, I'm understanding the psychological piece of it and also understanding the dietary piece of it. There's a huge connection with the gut and frozen shoulders that I haven't quite figured out totally, but I know it has an impact. And it gives me more tools in my toolbox when I'm treating somebody with a frozen shoulder. So I can do a manual intervention and do manipulation or whatever it is on the shoulder, on the fascia, on the body itself. I can talk to somebody about their diet. And then I can also talk to them about their what's locked in the shoulder, what psychologically is happening in their lives, what is it attached to in the past. So I have sort of a more holistic intervention that way. And by using the model itself, language, perception, your body is talking to you, incorporating all of these different facets. And it's also for me, I found over time that the most important thing is to find out when it happened and what was happening in your life when the shoulder stopped working well. Mm -hmm. And I can just have a patient, I'll be treating them manually, because of course the tissues need to be addressed. But I can say to them, what, is there something that you want to reach for, but you won't give yourself? And that can set off a whole discussion. And oftentimes that kind of a discussion will reduce the constriction in the actual tissues in the shoulder. Just the understanding of what's behind it can help relieve and help the person move more ably. Is that because of what you said that emotions are a part of the physical tissues? Yes, we have, particularly in our fascia. And our fascia is actually the largest organ in our body. It includes, it's also called connective tissue. It includes skin, tendons, ligaments, joint capsules. Blood is a fascia, fat is a fascia, lymph is a fascia. So it's the largest tissue in our body. It goes, it is absolutely everywhere. And it's highly, highly innervated with receptors that speak to our brains and have a language between the receptor and the fascia and the parts of the brain, particularly our autonomic nervous system, which is a regulatory mechanism, which is fight, flight, it's rest, digest. It's all of these systems have language and communication with the fascia itself. Can you just break that down a little more? What does um, innervated and receptors mean? So innervation is nerve endings that give feedback to the central system and to our brain about the state of our tissues. And also gives feedback, but it also gets information from the brain out so that's a feedback loop right there right there yeah and receptors receptors are minute organs in our tissues that are part of the feedback loop so that we know things like where our body is in space where our body is moving through space what is the emotional state of our body so these feedback loops are happening unconsciously all the time Mm. so now knowing this information can you explain that Again, with how you said that fascia is innervated with the emotional part of the brain. So all those tissues that I described before, if, if you could imagine a skeleton, bone is also fascia. If you could imagine a skeleton, just a skeleton, a human skeleton, and then a huge roll of saran wrap. 
And that huge roll of saran wrap is wrapped around the head, the trunk, the extremities, the pelvis, the thorax. Everything is wrapped multiple, multiple layers with that saran wrap. And all the organs and muscles are embedded in that saran wrap. That saran wrap is the fascia. And the nerves have to run through that saran wrap. The muscles can't function if they're not attached to that saran wrap because that saran wrap is what the muscles contract against. They allow the force of the muscle to be transmitted. And in all of that saran wrap are little organs that have feedback loops to the central nervous system saying, and they have feedback loops for pain, they have feedback loops for emotional state, they have feedback loops for motion and for position. So that is the wiring in our bodies that then tells the brain and the central nervous system where we are in space, how we hurt, what's happening. It's a constant feedback loop in our bodies. So, of course, simply by talking about the emotional state of a frozen shoulder, those tissues could start to change. Right. And there's, I forget where I read this, but there was somebody who talked about, I think it was Ashley Montague, talked about the skin being an actual externalization of the brain. That's how integrated it is. <laughs> so when I worked with kids with autism, and actually with cerebral palsy, with all the work, I guess that's what all the work ended up being. I was actually addressing their brain through their skin and through the fascia. So I was looking to get brain changes through fascial input. Hmm. And it was manual input, but it impacted the brain. So it's like the story I said about the oxytocin. You're actually changing the hormones in the brain by putting a hug, a compressive force into the fascial tissues. Right. And it's really not rocket science. But once you understand that it's, we, we do it automatically, you know, in social situations. But when you apply it with a consciousness, you get changes mm. in disease and dysfunction that you would not necessarily otherwise get. Yeah. How do we do it automatically in daily life? You hug your kid when he's crying. Mm. Right. Your kid falls and skins his knee and then you hug him. Yeah. And so then rather than the distress of falling and skinning the knee, getting stuck in the knee, you hug and change the state, the state of the physiology and you allow that child to let go of that stress. And then the knee can heal and function. Right. Or the perception of the knee being damaged is cut off right at the beginning. Mm. I've seen it with little kids. You've seen the difference. Like one will fall and they'll look to their parent. And if the parent goes, oh, you poor thing, the child just cries and cries. Whereas if the parent, not abusively, but says, you're okay, you're okay, the child just gets up and starts walking. So that's the impact of perception on our physiology. Right. And that's where early on a child learns what to pay attention to. Mm. If you're paying attention to the wound, to the damage, you get a different outcome than if you're paying attention to your underlying function, like I can get up and walk down the street, I'm okay. Mm. One of the things I love about this model is that it provides so much empowerment within yourself to be able to open up so many doorways when you feel out of control. I often wonder if chronic illness 
gives us a feeling of lack of control, of disempowerment, of we're at the mercy to this pain that may just be there and we have no control over it. Could you just walk us through, maybe using yourself as an example, how you apply this model when looking at a particular chronic pain or issue or something? Well, again, the first thing I want to do is to change my or the person's perception of whatever the disease or dysfunction is. Because by changing the perception or the definition of it, there's the language, you change the outcome. Because our language has so much attached to it, so much emotionally and psychologically attached to it. If I say, we'll use cancer for an example. If I say somebody has cancer, there's a fear associated. There are all kinds of emotions culturally associated with cancer. And that, I believe, has an impact on the person who is diagnosed. If you change your definition of cancer, and there's a wonderful book called The Healing Power of Illness that talks about the meaning of the different dysfunctions or diseases. If you just look up something like that and change the definition, it doesn't mean you change the treatment, but you may change the outcome. You may change what treatments you choose. It will empower you internally in the face of a disease or a pain or something like that that to me just changes the outcome. So I remember many years ago, looking up the definition of pain and the International Society for the Study of Pain, there's something else on that, says it, a pain is an unpleasant emotional experience. Well, that just changes the whole thing for me. So then I can, instead of focusing on the pain, I can go to the emotion that underlies it. And if I can understand where that emotion came from or change it, then I can change my pain patterns. Sure. Yeah, that changes everything. You have a sore throat. My throat is in pain. There's not much else. Okay, let me do what I can to ease that pain. But if I then ask, well, what is the emotional experience behind that pain? And why is it in my throat? Is that how you would go about it? Yes. And I also like to flip things around. I once had a guy come in and he said, my, I'm so angry because my rib hurts. And my immediate thought was, maybe your rib hurts because you're so angry. <laughs> let's change it around so so if if i say maybe your rib hurts because you're so angry and then we can go into the anger and the underlying cause of the rib so that's another application of the language and i've done that across the board with people mm. it's just flipping how you how someone describes something yeah how could you go about applying some of these tools to your own self how well, could i do I it all it? the time i i yeah. um I go, I have these books. I mean, Louise Hay is one, The Healing Power of Illness. A lot of dictionaries of symbolism that talk about different body parts and what their meaning is. Mm -hmm. And I can then redefine something. For instance, your ankle hurts, your ankle isn't working. So, so the ankle has to do with forward movement, with support. You can look through a list of what its symbolism is and then choose the one that is appropriate in the moment for your dysfunction or disease. Mm -hmm. And it just opens up other ways of seeing, perceiving, and then opens up other options. Right. And it doesn't mean you don't treat it. You still treat it, but you're treating it from a different perceptual standpoint. Right. And then also sometimes one can get really angry like what do you mean that's what it means and that's another clue like oh this has a charge to it so maybe that really is what's going on inside of you to address the charge mm. 
sometimes that you hear resistance around healing like no this is a real pain i'm not crazy i'm not making this up but if you define and i have for myself so i'm not asking anybody to do anything i haven't done i define my pain as resistance it's just bottom line what am i resisting mm -hmm. that's so good and then then i may not like it i may not want to deal with it but it changes how i um, approach it absolutely and then I can say, what am I resisting right now in life? I can look around, what area is painful? What, you know, where is the resistance residing? Where does it come from? It gives you more questions to ask. Hmm. And again, it doesn't mean you don't treat it. Right. Well, it makes sense when you describe the anatomy of the fascia that it, you kind of need to address all the sides to it because it's not just a physical tissue. There is emotion layered into it. And also, I guess, if you would only attach the emotional piece, would that be enough, do you think? You mean attach it or address it? Address it, I mean. Yeah, sometimes it is enough. Sometimes mm. it's absolutely enough. Mm. Sometimes you need both. Sometimes, for instance, if you have a frozen shoulder over a long period of time, you're, you're peeling off layers of different emotional pieces in addition to just mechanically, physically changing the shoulder. Sure. But for instance, you just mentioned a sore throat. So if I have a sore throat, then I'm going, okay, this is how my brain works. So get ready. <laughs> so it's my throat. What does the throat represent? A number of things. It represents being able to speak. It represents being able to swallow. It represents the connection between the head and the body. You know, you can just go on and on. And pain represents resistance. So what am I resisting saying? What am I resisting swallowing in my life? What am I resisting in terms of connecting my head with my body? I just start playing with that kind of stuff. And it gives me power in the face of, in some ways, the body that's not functioning the way I would like it to. Absolutely. It changes everything. And I'm personally interested in power. <laughs> power to me is simply by definition from the Latin word posse means to be able so if I have a sore throat, it doesn't mean I don't go to the doctor and take lozenges or tea or whatever it is. But I also want the power in the face of that by having the knowledge of what it means. What's the symbolism of it? Sure. Yeah. Why, why the throat? Why now? Right. <laughs> You're rubbing off on me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've told you the story about my mentor who was called into a, he's a DO and was called into the ICU for somebody who had pneumonia. And his first question is, why now? Why that lobe? Why, why, why? Instead of just throwing drugs at it, and then also treating it and seeing what the outcome is. Right. Because the day before you didn't have pneumonia. So what made it happen now? So those are the kinds of questions I like to ask. Well, it also seems like it's it could point you in a completely different direction that you would have never gone had you not asked those questions. Maybe you discover that there's another dysfunction somewhere else in the body that, or something that you would have never addressed had you not started digging deeper. Yeah. Right? Is yes, that, is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, for instance, if somebody comes to me with heel pain, one of the first questions I'll ask them is, in your life, what's your Achilles heel right now? And these myths are there for a reason. Hmm. So I like to play with that stuff. Love it. The thing for me that is so empowering is that anybody can do this. Yeah. You just need some books or an internet connection that you can start looking stuff up and playing around with it. And using your own gauges. If something is 
particularly charged or if it hits a nerve that makes sense, then then that's the answer. Right. And the answer may change tomorrow. Who cares? You just keep keep looking. Right. It just requires a curiosity and a will to heal. And also a belief that you can. I mean, in our culture, we've given up our power to the medical model, to other treaters and that sort of thing. It's not so easy to do this all by yourself. However, if you have someone that you have an equal interaction with, you can help the healing forces, whatever you want to call them, inside of our own bodies to arise more productively. Right. Well, you're creating a positive environment to allow the body to do what it's And you're also to do. getting someone else's perception of your dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so you have that feedback loop again. The more eyes you have on it, the more ability you have to change it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I, I think is being ready to heal. This is a funny story. Years ago, I was watching Katie Couric on Channel 4, NBC, and she was interviewing a woman who was morbidly obese. I think she weighed over 600 pounds. And the woman kept saying, yeah, I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight. I really do. I've been on all these diets. And I was in my own house by myself talking to the TV saying, yeah, but what part of you doesn't want to? That's the part we need to address. Mm-hmm. We all want to lose weight. We all want to look better. But the part of us that doesn't is the one we need to look at. And so that's really informed me. Mm. And there's a great quote from Hippocrates who says, before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that made him sick. And that's a big one. I mean, in our culture, there are secondary benefits to being sick. Sure. Well, even in the most basic form, being sick can offer you attention can offer you attention. It can offer you a break. Yeah. It can offer you, I can remember when I was young and I worked in the hospital calling in and saying I was sick when I wasn't. But in our culture, that is seen as something that's okay. I, I didn't dare call in and say, you know what? I just need a day off here. <laughs> so right. I'd call in and say I'm sick and they'd go, oh, okay, fine. Yeah. So, right. It's a boundary that's accepted. Right. It's a language in our culture that's accepted. Right. Which is much more accepted than wellness. Yes. If I I need a I need need a a wellness day. Yeah. It's not gonna go over very well. Right. No, get get your butt (laughs) into work. Right. So there's there's also a piece of that, like what if I wonder about asking that question, what is this dysfunction or disease offering me right now? How is this serving me? Because it must be must be getting something and how can I meet that need in another way if I'm ready to let go of the dysfunction and letting go of it is really difficult it can be really difficult yeah because in many ways it's I call it a structure it's something that has held us together for whatever reason we've used it And, and I'm not judging it you know people will say well you're saying you know that we you're judging and saying that I created my own illness that sort of thing or you're blaming me I'm not blaming this is just how I see the world and it's how I apply it to myself yeah and in fact it sounds actually the complete opposite when you really break it down that it's it's actually not of a creation it's it's from a place of power and healing and choice but if you look at the idea of well how do I if I need to set an emotional boundary without using sickness as a crutch, that's a lot harder. No, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Very. That, that can be a lot harder. It doesn't necessarily have to be with time, but that can be quite hard if you're not practiced at setting an emotional boundary, but saying, oh, no, I'm sick. 
that can solve that. And yet the flip side of that is sometimes that's the only language the other person can understand. True. And so if you say I'm sick, that's an out, that's an okay, appropriate thing to be. So I, I think, again, it all comes down to choice. You talked about power. I think there's no more power than having a choice in, in a situation or inside of myself. I mean, choice and power are so intertwined for me. It's empowering to have choice. Mm, absolutely. Right. When we're feeling powerless, it feels like there are no options. Right. There is no choice. And when you're powerless, for instance, in the face of pain, if you redefine pain, then you have a choice to see it differently. Hmm. Right. And that's what this is about, which is why it's the opposite of blame, because blame to me feels powerless. But this is offering choice. And then I can decide which one to choose. And I can choose to be sick. Yeah. That's what works for me. That's fine. Absolutely. But then I know it from a place of power. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it, and you can think of three people who would benefit. If you have friends that are interested in going on journeys with you and joining in, it could be so fun and valuable to send this episode to some friends or your partner or work relationships and then have a discussion about it. Like talk about these things. And if you want to support this show, just take a moment and hit subscribe. Give us a review and a five-star rating. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week.